This is the Nottinghamshire LMC podcast, here to educate, inform and support general practice staff in Nottinghamshire. Get to know about those who represent you, as well as all the latest information from Notts LMC at your leisure. Tune in and subscribe to our podcast today, hosted by me, Zenaida Morrison at podbean.com. Hello and welcome back to the Nottinghamshire LMC podcast. Today's episode focuses on a very important topic, which is safe working in general practice. What is it? What does it mean? And what should GPs and their practice staff be doing to implement safe working measures in practice? Joining us today for this discussion is Dr. Richard Van Mullets. He is Deputy Chair at the BMA GP Committee and he's also a GP at Fairhill Medical Practice in London. Thanks for joining us, Richard. Thanks so much for having me. And thank you. Thank you. It's lovely to it's lovely to have you um on today and to be having this conversation. I deem it to be extremely important. So thanks again for coming. So safe working, of course, is something that um has become an essential thing for general practice to do and to ensure their patients are safe. And that's the purpose for it. So not not just patient safety, but also the well-being of of practice staff as well. Um, And as an LMC, we are working on how we support practices to embrace what this means, which is things like capping activity, uh, patient waiting lists. and, And in many ways, this episode is really the beginning of of giving that consent and that confidence and assurance to practitioners to take measures that may be quite difficult to begin with, uh, you know, in terms of implementing, but ultimately would lead to being able to provide more sustainable levels of care to their patients. There has been some national guidance, uh, Richard, about safe working, which was released by BMA GP committee, um, which we will be you know, following, it will be followed, I believe, by toolkits and, and, and case studies um, as time progresses. And as an LMC, we hope to kind of utilise those resources effectively to support practices in the region. But firstly, there needs to be, I guess, a clarity and an understanding of the guidance, the reason behind it, and then also kind of to go through some of the, the recommendations and the things that have been suggested. Uh, so Richard, I, I'm going to hand over to you at this point. And if you could kind of give us a backdrop of safe working and and talk us through the guidance so that practices can get a sense of what it's all about and what it could mean for their practice. Sure. So, so um, so I'm uh, Richard Vermelt. I'm a GP in Southwest London, and uh, I'm elected to GPC England, and uh, I'm one of the deputy chairs. And a big part of my portfolio is this safer working guidance. Uh, now, people say to me, what is safer working? And it's about working in practice in a way that is entirely contractual. So it's within our contracts, entirely within our gift. But it's a way that makes us safer as GPs. It makes our colleagues in all of, our, all of their different roles in the practice safer. And it makes our patients safer in terms of their well-being and how we can actually make our practices and our workload sustainable again. Because the problem is at the moment that there is demand far outstripping capacity. Yes. Um, and our ability to provide the appointments that are demanded is near impossible. So it's looking at what we can actively do in order to try to satisfy that and how to square that circle, because we're not able to really do that at the moment in the present scenario. 
So I've got a presentation that I'm going to bring up, um, which I'll talk through with you all, uh, which just talks about what sort of things have been done elsewhere, what sort of things have been found to work. Uh, and as Zanada says, we're developing a toolkit. So it's a whole raft of different examples because it's really important to remember that there is no one size fits all. What would work for my practice in Kingston might not necessarily work in Nottingham, might not work in, in Wessex or Cornwall or Cumbria. But if we can all share our brains and share all these different ways and examples of different that different people have used based on a few fundamental principles, then it can give us a framework about, around which we can adapt our practices, again, entirely within our contracts, to be able to better manage our patients safely. The context is that at the moment, demand is outstripping supply. Patients' needs and expectations have changed. The, the pandemic have really changed that. We've got a big backlog in secondary care. Uh, there are unrealistic expectations and targets that are being set, set by government. And we're finding that increasingly, our practices are on the front line, being put under lots of pressure. Um, patients are happy. GPs are unhappy. Our, our practice staff and colleagues are unhappy because we cannot currently satisfy these issues. So we need to start to make changes in order to be able to settle things back down to where they should be. There's workload control in general practice, which has been around for a while. That's talking about different things that we can not, we don't necessarily need to do in general practice, how to manage those kinds of demands. And then the safer working in general practice document, which we link to uh, with this presentation. Now, this is being constantly updated. So I'm in the process of adding more things all the time to it with colleagues at the BMA. And so, and it's a web page, so you can revisit it and go back there, get different ideas and, and get different things. And it talks about capping appointments, capping the number of contacts we have, uh, whether or not the waiting list might be something that we look at, how to prioritize workload, getting rid of that external unresourced workload. So what people call secondary care work dumping, how to start managing those kinds of things. Yeah. There's PCN DES, which, you know, in some places has been very supportive and in other places not so, and has added a significant burden. So having a bit of a think about that. And there are, you know, there's there's recourse to things that we've always had access to in terms of thinking about practice list closure and things of that sort. So there's lots of research we're doing at the BMA to look at this, you know, how workload is impacting on people, what the actual real workload is, because the way it's measured is quite crude. So government really measures this in terms of appointments. And you'll obviously realize immediately that so much of the work that you do isn't encapsulated within the traditional appointment system. It's it's about, you know, when you're staying late, it's it's often because you're managing documents that are coming through, results that are coming through, patient queries, the task and all the different things that are sort of coming into our into our sort of workplace and workstation every day. These are the things that we're not actually very sophisticated at measuring because actually knowledge is power here. The more knowledge we've got and the more data we've got, the better that we can communicate that to our patients, communicate that to government and NHS England and steer the system in such a way as to be able to actually better manage our workload and better care for our patients. And really at, at the bottom, I mean, that, that, that point about every practice is different. I mean, that's so true. And, you know, and, and as I say, what, what I do in my practice wouldn't necessarily work anywhere else in the country, but we can all steal and borrow little ideas and adapt those things because you know best how to manage your practice and your patients. Now, this is really the um, these are the headlines here. So this is what I've touched a bit on already in terms of measuring our workload and resource work. What is core general practice? That's really crucial. Um, how to prioritize and capping. The capping appointments. So this is one that. Um, is increasingly being utilized and it varies very much from practice to practice. So 
our responsibility in our practice is to provide for the reasonable needs of our patients. That doesn't mean everything for everybody all the time. That doesn't mean limitless capacity every day. It doesn't mean that we have to do everything immediately for our patients. We can prioritize those things that need to be seen on the day, those things that can actually wait a bit longer. And that then means that we need to start to think about how are we managing our duty doctor systems? I've talked to lots of duty doctors and they're talking about seeing up to having 100 contacts per day. Now, I don't think any of us can provide as good a consultation with our 100th patient as we did with our first in a day. It just, you know, we get decision fatigue. They've recognized it for years in the airline industry and the haulage industry. They've got caps on their workload. We need to start to apply sensible caps in our practice. Now, we talk about 25 to 35 appointments or contacts per day in your practice. Now, what is a contact? That's a sort of a, a slightly complex one because, again, this is slightly reductionist because we're really thinking about appointments here, whether that be telephone or video or face-to-face. -face. Um, but limiting those to between 25 and 35, this is based on UMO, which is uh, the European um, Medical Organization um, sort of stated, suggested figures. Limiting it down to that kind of level maintains the high quality. And if we're getting beyond that level, then we need to be looking at what other sort of things we can be doing and where else people can be moved within the system locally, not just in the practice, in order to satisfy that demand. So, so Richard, you said something there which was interesting, and sorry to interject, but about the 25 contacts per day, you said that it could vary. So if it is prime, um, should I say majority um, phone consultations, um, does that does that mean that once they've reached that cap of 25 then that's that's pretty much the most that they should be doing or could they have some face-to-face -face that goes beyond 25 so it's, so how people structure their appointment yeah. books is, is up to the practice based on their patient needs and requirements what they feel is best for them um i can give you the example of what we do in my practice mm. so in my practice we gradually reduce the contacts down to 31 per gp per day now, that doesn't mean that I'll never see any more than 31 patients. That's a mixture of telephone or face-to-face. -face. Yeah. It's about, it's about one-third telephone, two-thirds face-to-face. Um, now, that doesn't mean that I'll never see anybody. So if we have a sick child phone in the afternoon and we're chock-a-block, I'm not going to send them away. I will see them. But what we're doing is we're letting patients know that actually once we've filled, once we've filled our normal capacity, mm -hmm. then they need to have a good reason why they need to be seen that day so it's not about having unlimited numbers of extras and equally it's not about pulling down the shutters it's about having a system in place good clinical governance in there and so this is where i'm talking about things like care coordination and triage um in having that in there and a triage that changes through the day so that when you phone up up at eight o'clock in the morning or eight thirty, there are a good number of appointments available but as you go through the day and the capacity is getting filled the threshold at which a patient needs to reach in order to get into one of those appointments increases so that later on in the day, you might need to be frail elderly, a child under five or palliative care in order to then fulfill the requirement to go into one of those extras or one of those slots. Now, many practices are pre-triaging their lists. So they're using AI and, and other forms of automation um, or you know care coordination to go through their patient list to flag patients who are high risk will need to um, fall into those categories so when they call in the the, uh, the staff member answering the phone or seeing the the email interaction 
then knows that these patients need to be seen and they need to be prioritised. And if they don't fall into that category, then other forms of review need to be undertaken to, to decide if they do. This doesn't necessarily have to be burdensome, mm -hmm. but utilising those kinds of systems, we move away from the kind of approach where, as I say, everything, everybody all the time uh, it has to go into everything, irrespective of their priority, but we're reprioritising based on the resource that we have available. So, um, and using other providers is an important part of this. Now, many parts of the country have access to walk-in centres. Um, they have access to overflow hubs. And this is about the fact that actually capacity isn't our problem in, in each individual practice. It is a system-wide issue. When, a, when ED is under considerable pressure in my local area, I get, a, I get an email saying, please consider carefully before you, you send patients along to us. Um, Obviously, the assumption is that I send patients in the whole time, irrespective all the time. But yeah, but there we are. Um, and actually, so that's making ED's pressures a system-wide issue. General practice uh, um, pressures are a system-wide issue as well. Many areas are using a RAG rating or using OPAL systems and things like that. That's actually really crucial, really important. It can be a real drag for practice to engage with. I've talked to some practices and they're having to do it every day, which they find really burdensome. And other areas once a week. I would always encourage if, if you've got access to an Opal system in your area, bite the bullet and do it. Because actually, if you feed that data in, it's really constructive in terms of giving weight for your LMC to be able to negotiate um, measures from your local uh, ITB that can actually support practices. Because if, if you're under pressure, I think a lot of the time in general practice, we just grit our teeth and get on with it. Actually, if we flag it up, say this is beyond safe levels, demand is far outstripping supply, something needs to be done, then that gives weight to the argument, both nationally and locally, that there be systems put in place in order to help manage that over over capacity. Yeah, I think you said it right, Richard, in that it can it can be a bit laborious for, for them sometimes, especially with the amount of work, sheer amount of workload that we clearly know uh, that practices are, are you know, uh, have at the moment. So I think that's another place where you know as an LMC we would like to support in any which way that we can but I think you're right in that it's it's something to bite the bullet and get done because uh, it will kind of help them in the long run but yeah thank you absolutely mm -hmm. and all of these things they do take a bit of time you know they take a bit of organizational development it takes a bit of your your practice managers and your GPs in the practice yeah. actually oh you're gonna have to sit in a few more meetings to decide how to do this and you know actually we're all working so hard to, actually biting the bullet it's it's short-term pain for long-term gain mm -hmm. so as i say access isn't the problem capacity is the problem not your problem and nhs england are not commissioning sufficient capacity within general practice so how are we capping how are we going to do this so i would say incremental changes don't have a big bang where you go from a um uh you know a, a limitless um number of appointments down to a, a very finite number engaging with your patients, talking with them about how you do this. This is where you use your patient participation group. Talk to them. They can be your greatest ally. But remember that the entire country is being fed a whole load of nonsense from all the papers all the time about how general practice, how uh, how GPs are lazy and we're sitting around, whereas you know, I, I, I'm yet to meet a lazy GP. Um, so, you know, engage with them. Talk to them about the pressures you're experiencing. Let them know that this will actually maintain your services. By changing the way that you're working, you can make sure that your practice survives and actually is strengthened and the quality of the care that you provide is greater. Yeah. 
So, and that includes engaging with your LMC, engaging with local politicians. They, you know, if you've got a sensible local politician or a sensible MP, then they can be a fabulous ally with this. Um, small incremental changes, changing over time. There, as I say, my practice were at 31 um, contacts per day, uh, which feels a lot more manageable when it, than when it was best part of 40 uh, plus extras uh, a couple of years ago. But it's small incremental changes over time as you develop an adaptive system. And if you can do recruitment, I know that recruitment is very difficult everywhere, but, uh, you know, looking at who you're recruiting, how you're recruiting, and what sort of, but make sure that you're making plans with the sort of access demands in mind when you're, um, when, when you're making your recruitment plans. So safer working, this is where I, I, I age myself, because I like to talk about Zamo from Grange Hill, which who some of you um, who've got as much grey hair as me may remember. Um, so his his tagline was just say no. So this is about saying no to unresourced work. That the things that you're being asked to do by other parts of the system which aren't your job. Now they may not get done by other people, but secondary care, community care providers, all of these kinds of people, they're very good at saying no. But that doesn't mean that it should fall on your shoulders to actually do this. Um, so again, measuring your workload, map everything, use the Opal system. Waiting list. Now this this is. Um, a concept that we've sort of created where or we've thought about what secondary care have you been using waiting this for a long time for those patients that need to be seen on the day triage them they need to be seen there and then somebody can wait a week they can be seen within a week and then there are those patients that don't need to be seen immediately at all so they've got an issue where they can go onto a waiting list and be seen at some point in the future when there is sufficient capacity but considering again how these kinds of things can be applied to your practice is really crucial there's more details on the website um, list closure is always an option um, and you know engage with your LMC with this they're really the the experts in helping support you if you feel that that's something that you need to do in order to preserve the quality of care that you provide and the safety of your patients and your staff so this is a bit more about that sort of that waiting list concept so again it comes back to providing for the reasonable needs of our patients the ACM crush on the phones so there is a bit of a political imperative about this so there is, you know, there's increasing pressure from the Department of Health and other ministers about this. So we do, you know, thinking about how we start to get away from that. So again, looking at triage, pre-triaging patients, like I've already talked about, and re-triaging people once they have been, uh, once they have been sort of categorised. So you, and then those patients that have, have not got an urgent problem at first contact, it might change. It might get more severe. It might become more problematic. So there's got to be systems in place in order to re-triage them if appropriate mm -hmm. and yeah using the wider system is really crucial now, the pcn des again this falls into my portfolio um and this is this is something which in some areas has been fabulously successful and in other areas is a real burden um but you know thinking about the ars staff that you've got within your pcn and making sure they're supporting your core offering to your patients as much as possible now there's all kinds of bits and pieces and extra waffle and fluff with the PCN des, which we're all asked to do. But actually, if you distill it down, there are only a certain number of requirements that are absolutely mandated. And actually then, if we can get ARS staff, yes, fulfilling those requirements, but then looking at what they can do in order to support core general practice as much as possible. And this can then utilize that resource, if you've got them there, if you've been able to recruit, which I recognize can be very, very difficult, but have them there in order to help support your GP, support your patients. But thinking about the financial benefits, you know, actually the PCN DES only sort of brings in roughly 10 to 15% of practice income on average. 
Um, and so, you know, and, and it's an awful lot of work, not necessarily an awful lot of income. And some practices have made the decision that they will opt out. The future of PTN, so we're, we're going into year four from April of the five-year current framework. Um, and it is likely that PCNs will evolve come April 2024. What that's going to look like, we're going to be entering into negotiations with NHS England soon in order to co-create something which is more practical, which is better, and is better reflective of local variations, because at the moment it's very much cookie cutter, one size fits all approach. Mm -hmm. And, you know, well-being um, of your team is really important, you know, and we talk about this a bit more these days than we used to, but it's really crucial. And, it, you know, it's worthwhile reflecting, checking with each other, look after each other. Because if we if we look after each other, we can actually help maintain our practices, maintain our, you know, our sense of well-being and, and look after our patients more. So there's lots of resources out where out there. And I always stress that LMCs have great offerings for support and advocacy for their GPs in their area. So do make sure that you're familiar with what your LMC has available to you and work with them on this because they can be a fabulous resource. So this is just a few lists. This, this, this presentation will be available to everybody, but there's a few sort of national different um, support networks out there as well. So this is all about managing your workload to protect well-being, and it's well-being of you and your staff as well as your patients. You can't look after your patients if you're not there, if you're not if you're burnt out, or if you left the profession, you've reduced your hours, you've retired early, or you've moved to Australia. So you know there's increasing pressure, there's increasing problems with our morale. So if we manage our workload, we can help this. But really crucially, work with our patients. They're our allies. You get them on side and they can help to really support these kinds of changes to make them successful in your practice. And just in terms of negotiations as we go forward, we've completed negotiations now for 23-24. That's hopefully going to be announced very shortly. Uh, it was initially rejected by uh, GPC England because it wasn't satisfactory. It wasn't reflective of the needs of the profession. We're hoping that NHS England will come back with a better offer. Um, and there's obviously negotiation going on with it in that respect, but that will be announced soon. And then 24-25, there's been lots of work engaging with LMCs and GPs across the country about what general practice is going to be looking like. And so I would encourage you to really engage with that because, you know, we need to hear from every GP what they think that general practice should look like in order that we can then go and negotiate that on their behalf. Wow. Well, thank you, Richard. That's a that's great. That's a really great overview. And as he mentioned, you will have access to uh, these slides at some point. Uh, so you'll have access to to kind of all the recommendations and and the websites and all of that. Um, I think Richard, from a from an LMC uh, stance, this is definitely something that we deem you know extremely important for practices uh, to understand and to start implementing. Um, and we hope at some point in the new in the new financial year that we will be having some sort of face to face um, kind of event of sorts that is focused on safe workings. I think I think it's it's very important that we do. Um, in the meantime, we we personally have uh, published our own focus on uh, we we do these focus on documents depending on what topics are circulating um in in the healthcare landscape and safe working being one of them we actually released it last november so that's on our website if you if you haven't had the opportunity to have a look yet but it, it simplifies things it breaks things down for you um and so if you go to www.nottinghamshirelmc.co.uk you will find that document under what we do under the resources 
tab on our website. But yeah, so that's one of the things we've done. We've also hosted a weekly briefing. So some of you, some some of our practice who practices who do come to our weekly briefings, it's every Monday at 12 noon. Um, and it's an opportunity to voice your concerns, but it's also an opportunity to discuss matters arising. So I know we have had a weekly briefing where we did discuss our safe working focus on document, which was in line uh, with the BMA GPC guidance that Richard has kindly just gone through. And and we're just, we're, you know, we just feel that there's a lot more that needs to be done on this. And I know currently our uh, chief executive, Michael Wright, is in conversations with practices who are actually quite keen to start implementing some of the uh, things suggested in this guidance. And it's it's just to reiterate, it is a process. Um, not everything is that has been suggested is going to work for every practice, but it's about looking through those recommendations and kind of looking at where you currently are as a practice and what you could implement now um, and then what you could implement with uh, within time. But we're always here, uh, as I mentioned, the LMC are here to help you uh, find more safe working measures. Um, so all you have to do is get in touch with our liaison team. They're always on the ground, visiting practices, having discussions with uh, practice managers. So um, you can contact them via email at liaison at uh, notslmc.co.uk or you can call on I believe it's 0115-977-1341. So yeah, that's just some ways to to get in touch to get in touch with us. Um I think Richard now I'm going to ask a few questions that we we know our practices would be asking. Uh they they would want to know some of these questions. So nothing that you probably wouldn't already have an answer to. But I think this would be a good kind of way for for us to document responses um, of, I guess, frequently asked questions. So, uh, do you mind if I? Uh, Absolutely. <laughs> so, so we, we, um, one of the other things I'm doing is developing an FAQ. So we are planning to publish sort of a, a, a MythBuster. Um, but because I've had lots of similar questions from other LMCs across the country. But yes, fire away, and I'll I'll answer as well as I can do. Wonderful. Okay, so the first question is in line with, I guess, waiting lists and, you know, capping appointments. Um, so I think you meant within the guidance, you mentioned kind of safe working, a uh, safe appointment, sorry, between 25 to 30 um, a day. But I know given the fact that, you know, each practice is different, they operate differently, um, they have different needs and there are different health inequalities depending on where that practice is located. Um, what does meeting the reasonable needs of patients actually mean? So the reasonable needs of your patients is different for every practice. And it is about assessing what you would ordinarily be able to provide and what would reasonably meet reasonable demands. Now, reasonable is a, it's a peculiarly English term within our law, which isn't within lots of other countries' law, but it does give us flexibility. I would suggest that it is possible to define your needs, uh, the reasonable needs of your patients by looking at what your demand is, looking at your list size, your demographics, understanding and benchmarking against other local practices and work with your LMC on this. They'll have a lot of data on that. Looking and talking with your PPG and your patient groups about how you are providing services and, and what, what they feel is reasonable as well. So it's not something you can really encapsulate 
into a, a terribly pithy sentence. And I've been trying to do this. And you can't really do it. But it is about looking at what would be what a, what a reasonable patient would expect to be provided based on the services that you have available in that practice. Yeah. Now, we all have we all have some patients who say, well, they, you know, I should be able to see you whenever I want. You know, three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon, I should have your mobile phone, doctor. That's not reasonable. What's reasonable is that we see a patient within a timely manner for a clinical problem or a, a, for a patient that's ill or believes themselves to be ill. But we get to define how they get seen, when they get seen, based on the appropriate clinical information. Yeah, and I, I think that's really good, Richard, that you said engage, the whole engagement and communication with the P, um, PPG, with patients within the group, um, is very important because it is about having an understanding of what their expectations are and then also kind of letting them know, okay, so these are your expectations, but this is the reality. And so based on this, this is what we need to do because I think essentially that's a great way to get patients as allies um, to kind of, also be a voice, I guess, for for general practice within the community. So I think, yeah, I think that's a really um, kind of good point uh, for that question. Okay, second question. We have no more appointments available for today. Can we signpost patients to other services once we are full? The short answer is yes. The slightly longer answer is that as long as there is effective clinical governance, and some form of assessment in place before you do so. Now, what none of us would ever advocate is that you hit your set number of contacts per, per day and then pull down the shutters and turn off your phones and that's it. But that patient that calls in with a sick child when they pick them up from school at half past four or an elderly adult or a frail person or a palliative care patient who becomes more ill later on in the day when you're at capacity, you need to have systems in place in order to, to assess them, decide whether they do need to be seen in addition to your current workload or whether they can be safely moved to some other part of the system. So should they be calling NHS 111? Should they be going to A&E? Is it an A&E type problem? Should they be directed to a local walk-in centre or an overflow hub or some other kind of uh, local arrangement that is in place? Um, so it's about being sure that you've got safe systems in place yeah. um, because we none of us want to have the scenario where we reach capacity and say I'm sorry we can't see you and a patient comes to a nasty outcome so none of us wants to see that yeah they have to have contingency measures isn't it really just um, in, in the event that this happens or a patient is severely uh, sick um, in comparison to, to what it was when they first got in contact this is what we would do this is how we would act upon that so I think Absolutely. It's very important. Um, do we have to run clinics every morning and every afternoon from Monday to Friday? So again, this comes back to providing for the reasonable needs of your patients. So our contracts say that we need to be available to provide care between 8 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. every day. That's it, Monday to Friday. That's, that's our core hours. What it doesn't define is how many appointments you have, how long your appointments are, where they are through the day. And obviously, it's going to vary based on the size of your practice. If you're a large practice like mine with 22,000 patients and um, a whole raft of GPs, then you can, you know, we have to structure things in such a way in order to be able to cram everybody into the building. But if you're a single-handed practice or a small practice, then it's obviously 
simply impractical. So it comes back to you defining based upon the needs of your patients, how you structure your appointments through the day, through the week, in order to provide for their reasonable needs. Yeah. So it seems like there's lots of different layers they have to meet before um, that, that that would be a, kind of a, a functional, I guess, approach to take, isn't it? That they have to um, know how they're going to meet those reasonable needs first. Yeah. So, um, you know, nobody would ever advocate, you know, just being open on Tuesday afternoon or Thursday morning, that was it. Yeah. Um, and I don't think I've never come across a practice that would be doing that kind of thing, because actually it's often more of a problem with people working too hard um, and burning themselves out as opposed to providing less than they, they would require. But again, talking to your PPG, you know, if you if you're, you, you know, keeping your keeping your doors open during core hours is, is something that we do need to do. Um, and um, but uh, and, there you know, there are an increasingly small number of instances where practices do close for half a day a week. And I think that that's something that NHS England are really keen to um, remove for good or bad. Um, but, that, you know, and that's but they often do that for historical reasons. But structuring your appointments in the way that you feel best meets the needs of your patients, providing the number of appointments that you feel does so, um, you know, is is. And again, engaging with your PPG on that. So, you know, it, it, looking at them and if you feel that there's a particular point in the week when you need to provide less appointments and you feel that that is reasonable, sense check it. And that, I think that's that's really key. But it's got to be locally adaptable based on your practice because you know it best. Okay. And I think well, I kind of feel like that kind of applies to this question as well, but I don't know if there's anything uh, more that you'd want to add. So do we have to have our phone lines on all day? So there are some variations across different areas with this. So, and there are some practices which will turn them off for an hour in the middle of the day. I think that these days it's increasingly difficult to do that. Um, whether our our core GMS contract states that we need to, I think that um, NHS England's lawyers would read it differently to our lawyers. Um, and um, but uh, but having you know, if you are going to be turning your phones off, there needs to be some kind of safe mitigation in place and safe, uh, uh, you know, redirection or a, a way of patients accessing care in an urgent situation in order to avoid the sort of scenario where somebody comes to harm. Right. OK. Do you have any? Well, actually, the next question that I'll ask that because I was going to say, do you have any examples of like things that they could do um, if for example, they do have their phone lines um, switched off at, at some point during the day, but we'll come to that. Um, how feasible is it for a practice to maintain a waiting list to cope when demand spills over? It is completely feasible. It is a not insignificant piece of work to set it all up and have the clinical governance in place and have the protocols and systems set up in order to do so and to organize your practice as such but it is completely legal and within our contracts to do so um uh, because at the moment there is no mandated for requirement for how fast a patient must be seen it is simply to provide for their reasonable needs so therefore if you have a patient with a very non-urgent long-standing non-dangerous clinical problem that can wait four weeks then they can go into a waiting list for the all that and they can be seen at that point at which they need to um, and as long as you are ensuring that there is effective triaging of some sort in place um, and the ability to re-triage people that are on the waiting list 
and that it it, it it would meet the requirements of the CQC. The CQC are there and they will monitor um, quality and safety. Yeah. So whilst the CQC um, are sort of interested in access, it's not one of those things that they directly measure. So some some practices have said to me, well, I can't do this. CQC are coming down on me like a ton of bricks if I cap appointments or introduce a waiting list. Actually, no, that's, that's not the case. Go and meet with the, with the CQC regularly and discuss this kind of thing with them. And and, that, and they will say that if you've got effective measures in place, you've got good triage, if you've got all this, all these, you know, all the sort of paperwork the CQC love, if you've got that all down on paper, everybody understands it in the practice and the patients understand it as well, and it is safe and it is providing quality care, then that is your locally adapted um, way of meeting the reasonable needs of your patients. Yes, um, no, absolutely. And I think ju just on that, I just want to say again, reach out to us, um, the LMC, reach out to our liaison team who are um, here to support you with things like that. I mean, we um, obviously have our CQC prep visits and things that we do to support practices already. But I think it's important that if there are processes that you want to put in place, uh, but you feel inundated, you feel like you need that little bit of extra support, reach out to the LMC because there are ways that we can support you to, to get this done. This is a really good question because I find that a lot of GPs um, tend to like having examples of practices who have implemented certain safe uh, working measures or just generally practices who have done something that has worked for them um so sharing best practice is is a way that they tend to learn um so the question is how does safe working work in your practice richard so um as, as i mentioned i'm in, I'm in a large practice twenty two thousand patients uh, we're actually based across three sites because we look after a university um we currently have a system where um, so if I describe my day, I'd have in the morning 14, uh, I'm, I'm just trying to count actually, uh, so 12 face-to-face -face appointments, six telephone slots. Um, I then have two blocked off slots at the end, which only I can use, which would be if I want to bring in a patient to be seen face-to-face, -face, I've spoken to on the telephone, or if there is somebody that I need to contact or bring in based on a, a, a test result that's come through, or else a document that I've uh, processed. Um, in the afternoon, uh, again, 12 face-to-face, -face, three telephone, two blocked off slots again. We also cap our um, uh, docman, uh, so our documents that come through and also repeat prescriptions. So everybody looks after their, their own test results. Um, and then docman, we limit to um, uh, a maximum of 20 per day per GP um, and uh, repeat for prescriptions, we cap at a maximum of 40 per day per GP. Now, how do we do that? So we do that by um, having um, a large number of administrators who will process repeat prescriptions and things of that sort. So we are part of the PCN. So we've got a, um, a, a, a clinical pharmacist who is wholly within our practice as a result of that. She manages lots of um, prescription inquiries and things of that sort. We have a couple of prescription clerks. We also have a, um, a pharmacy technician. We've been fortunate to be able to recruit in that respect, but that has meant that we've got a system in place which enables us to sort of manage that. And we also use our other 
non-doctor clinicians to manage some documents as well. So we take out a lot through um, systems in place with non-clinicians in the first place. So we weed out those things that don't need an action doing, and that's involved training and support and supervision over time in order to upskill them to the point of being able to do that. Now, there is some flexibility. So if we have, you know, the day or the, the week or the students come back from their summer holidays, our demand goes up or the week before Christmas, like every practice, our demand for repeat prescription goes up because everybody's terrified that they're going to run out over the, the four day back holiday. Um, so we we flex it a bit. Um, and what we've actually tried to do, so I'm a partner in my practice. What we've tried to do is to really very carefully manage the workload of our salary GPs. Now, partly that is selfish because it is to um, facilitate recruitment and retention. Um, salary GPs are working to a defined contract, and and that you know in a job plan that should, would often define how much work they, they'll be having in terms of repeat prescriptions, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But so we've made the decision as partners in my practice that we will flex. So there'll be sometimes when I don't, I actually have less um, repeat prescriptions than somebody else, um, but there'll be days when I'll have considerably more. Right. Same with my other partners. So it's it's about having a sensible approach, um, which is clearly defined, but then having a little bit of flex around the edges. But if you're flexing all the time, then you've probably not got it quite right. And it needs a bit of tweaking. And it's taken us a good couple of years to get to this point. So it's not overnight. I was going to say, I was going to say, how long did it take you to to get to this point? But yeah, so um, it's, it's, you know, once again, I think you're, what you're saying is it is work in progress. It's about finding what works for your practice because every practice is going to be different and I think you do have I guess the benefit of being able to uh, employ more staff whereas it probably wouldn't be the case for another practice so yeah once again there are different suggestions within the guidance um, not everything's going to work uh, but some things will and it's going to take a little bit of time to begin with uh, to, to, to get up and running but ultimately for, for patient safety and, and, and well-being of staff so it's still a very pivotal thing to well, just just to sort of add to that with the um with the staff component yeah. uh this is where you can leverage the pcn desk so utilizing the digital and transformation manager care coordinators now i think that those two roles in particular are brilliant because they're nice and ill-defined they're very vague and very woolly so it means you can make them what you want them to be in order to help support your practice and so you can have these people doing all kinds of things, even even the GP assistant role, which is brought in recently. Um, flex it, you know, be as be as broad, be as creative as possible. It's really about, you know, ask for forgiveness later. You know, act now, ask for forgiveness later is really crucial because I'm seeing lots of really innovative examples of how practices are using these kinds of stuff to support that kind of workload, which can make the GP's life more manageable. Yeah. Ah, thank you. No, I think I think they need to hear that from you, Richard, actually. So no, that's great. Um, can we turn off online triage? So this is uh, this is another one which I think NHS England and uh, and the BMA and LMCs would differ on. So I'm um, aware of lots of different ways of going about this. So some practices have managed this by hiding the link on their websites. Now, they may not um, advertise that fact, but it may not be terribly easy to find. Um, now, online triage can be a sort of, a, you know, it can feel like you're you're being inundated with uh, with requests. 
-hmm. Now, um, there are there are legal questions in this, and there are sort of still legal um, elements of it that are being bottomed out. But um, you know, some areas have considered that they they simply turn it off overnight, or they turn it off outside of core hours. Okay. Um, as, as a way of sort of managing that. Um, I'd, I'd encourage you to engage with your LMC if, if you're considering that, because that can be um, an effective way of helping to manage that demand. Um, and it, 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 so whilst we are obliged contractually to provide access um, or via online means to our um, to our services, it's not necessarily clearly defined in exactly what way that is. So there's lots of different ways of going about this. So I would say, you know, again, this this is one of those locally adaptable means where you work with your LMC, you can see what the sort of the, the expectations of your ICB are and see how you can provide within the the requirements of the contract whilst not just opening up a, 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 an unlimited demand um, uh, component. Right. Okay. Um two more questions <laughs> we get more demand through online consultations and feel like turning the tool off can we do this uh is it okay just to offer an email address so i think that an email address probably wouldn't fulfill the requirements of our contract so um it, it does talk about sort of online means of consulting so I think an email address would probably not satisfy that. But equally, it doesn't say that we need to give completely unfettered access via those means. And if we can demonstrate that the demand that is being um, encouraged by that route is unmanageable and unreasonable, then I feel that we can take reasonable measures. Again, I would encourage you to engage with LMC on this because they'll be able to give you the sort of the good practical on the ground advice um, in order to mitigate that because otherwise I, I'm, I'm aware of some practices that have had such enormous demand from this that they can barely manage to provide anything other than just sit there and go through um, e-consults every day and that's just it actually degrades the quality of the other services that you provide there's also arguments about it, it disadvantaging those that don't have easy access to online services. Because, you know, the, who, are, who are those patients that need us the most, who have a, the, the highest needs? And those are kids, and the elderly, palliative care, and those with long-term conditions. Those are all groups that are going to find it probably more difficult to access some of these online tools. So therefore, we need to make sure that actually the, the needs of those groups are being prioritised because they have the greatest need. Yeah, very good point. Um, last but not least, will we breach our contract if we say to our patients that we cannot fit anybody else uh, into the scene on a given day? So again, there's a short answer and a long answer to this. So that the short answer is no, you won't be in breach of your contract if you say to a patient, no, we do not have capacity to see you today. What happens after that is quite crucial and what happens before that answer is given is quite crucial as well. So again, this is about not having a hard finish and you bring down the shutters and say, we've had our 25 contacts per GP, that is it. Mm -hmm. If you have effective demonstrable processes in place that can assess the needs of that patient that is contacting you when you are beyond capacity and you have demonstrated that you 
don't have you don't need to provide capacity or the extra capacity to meet their needs at this moment in time i.e they've got a low acuity problem and they're calling when all of your normal slots are full um, and it's it's something which you can safely wait for later i would say that it's often best if you can direct people to another service or find a way of putting them into a waiting list or something else of that sort as opposed to please phone back again tomorrow because that doesn't necessarily do anybody fa any favors and so you know starting to think about ways of evolving away from i'm not saying don't ever do that but i think that we need to start thinking of developing systems which enable us to evolve away from doing that yeah. but this is where having done the prep work beforehand having worked with your lmc your local area to develop other system-wide issues making sure you've got that those um safe uh, triaging systems, care coordination processes in your practices, you've got the good clinical governance, that then puts you in a position where your patient calls in, they're assessed by your care coordinator or whoever, and then say, well, you've not got a problem which needs to be added into the already full capacity that's in today. So therefore, this is the other way that we are going to manage you, i.e. you're on a waiting list, call back tomorrow, please go to the walk-in centre, go to, you know, go to your local pharmacy or whatever. Yes. Well, that has uh, certainly been informative. I feel there's definitely more clarity on safe working. So thank you very much, Richard, uh, for joining us today and, and, and sharing that with us. Um, I think also uh, there's that whole aspect of, uh, you know, the patient engagement, patient communications. And like I said, uh, as an LMC, our doors are always opened. We're you know, we have been working and we are working with um, Health Watch to kind of look at different patient facing campaigns that, you know, can spread a little bit more information, um, even just as far as, you know, um, additional reinvestment roles are concerned um, and just different avenues uh, of care um, just to take some of that pressure of general practice and to make sure that GPs can provide uh, that quality of care that they they do and they're so used to providing to their patient population um uh, our liaison team as i mentioned earlier would be the first port of call um, and they can be reached by email at liaison at notslmc.co.uk or you can get them on 0115-977-1341 richard how can practices reach you should they wish to discuss safe working in more detail so i'm i'm very happy to be emailed uh mm -hmm. my uh, email address is r van mellarts so r v a n m e l l a e r t s at bma.org.uk or i'm on twitter at van mellarts so tweet at me uh, or email me and um i if i can answer your question i can find you someone who can Wonderful. Thank you very much. I'll put that on the show notes for sure. So you'll have those details. Um, that is uh, it for this episode. Always a pleasure coming your way. Uh, this episode will be hosted on our usual platforms, as you know, Podbean, Spotify, um, Apple and Google podcasts. Um, but also because we've recorded it as an audio visual, it will be hosted on our YouTube channel as well. So I think if you go into YouTube and type Nottingham and see, uh, you're likely to see it. So that will be uploaded and we will be updating you and letting you know when, when it's up for you to, to, to watch. Um, so thanks once again, and until next time, it's bye for now.
Thanks for listening. Be sure to subscribe to the Nottinghamshire LMC podcast for subsequent episodes with me, Zenaida Morrison, at podbean.com. Bye for now.